You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. When the history books are written in respect of the war in Ukraine at the moment, I'm sure it will be true to be said that President Zelensky will go down in history as someone who was able to rally the troops, as it were, and to boost morale in his country at a time when they faced the might of the Russian aggression. Back in the World War, Sir Winston Churchill played a key figure, was a key figure in rallying the troops as far as the British nation was concerned at a time when all appeared to be hopeless. But in a book of 300 pages that writes about his leadership at that particular time and the remainder of his life, only three pages are devoted to his death. Now, this is in great contrast, of course, to the gospel records about the life of Jesus. Because in Matthew and in Luke, both they devote approximately a third of their gospels to the death of Jesus Christ. And of course, they celebrate his death. Now, that's a a very strange thing for us to do, to to celebrate people's death. For example, Muslims don't celebrate the death of Muhammad, nor do Mormons celebrate the death of Joseph Smith. But yet the Christian church regularly and systematically celebrates the death of Jesus, despite the fact that he was crucified on the cross, which in itself was a symbol of shame and of crime and of punishment. But what was it that the Apostle Paul wrote? He said, I boast in nothing other than in the death of Jesus Christ. And when we think about it, the cross is the foremost Christian symbol. When you see a cross, immediately you think of of the, of the Christian religion, and you think very often of the cross being the symbol where Christ died. For example, why was it that the church chose the cross? Why didn't they choose a manger that represented his birth? Why didn't they choose an empty tomb that represented his resurrection? Why didn't they choose a book that would have represented his teaching? Or, for example, a lamp that was spoken of the fact that he was the light of the world in the midst of darkness. But the hill of Calvary, the cross, was the place that, that was, the, was the symbol that was, that was chosen. And the hill of Calvary was the battleground where the final assault between good and evil, between God and Satan, unfolded. And as we come up to the Easter season, I'm sure over the next few weeks there'll be one or two sermons preached on, on, on events associated with Easter. And this morning I want us to turn our attention to just one verse that we find that we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 51. And the verse says this, When the day drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some translations put it, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. But there was a stage in Jesus' life where he decided that after he had been doing all the teaching, all the healing, all the things that he was doing, that now was the time for him to focus on his final journey, which would take him to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. 
And that verse that he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem has a very strange authority associated with it because it means there was now a determination on the part of Jesus to do what he had come to do. And I want us this morning just to look at three things in answer to the question, why did Jesus focus on going to Jerusalem? First answer to that question surely must be that he focused on it in order to fulfill prophecy, and particularly the prophecy of Isaiah. In focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, what did Isaiah say? He said a number of things. Now remember, he was writing 700 years before Jesus. And look at the detail in which he was able to explain the life of Jesus. He says, first of all, in verse 2, he had no form or majesty or beauty that we should desire him. Do you ever think of it? The Bible doesn't ever give you a description of what Jesus Christ looked like. It just simply says here that he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. Now, that's in contrast to, to some other descriptions of people who were born in biblical times. When, for example, Moses was born, it was said of Moses that he was a goodly child. Now, all parents and grandparents think about their children that are born, and they say they, they are, well, they're just, they're just good, aren't they? They, they, just look like, they just look like somebody else in the family, and their noses are trickling, and their nappies are needing change, and they say, he looks just like his dad. And, and there's all sorts of people who, who say different things about, about, about children, but they all think they're beautiful, and, and they are. And Moses was one who was identified as one who had beauty. Or take, for example, Daniel. Daniel, who was taken captive by the Babylonians, and he was brought into the court of the king, and the role of Daniel was to learn the ways of the Babylonians and be a role model for other young men. And what does it say about those who were chosen for that particular position? That they were to be handsome that there were to be no flaws or imperfections in their looks. In other words, we see that in Daniel, he was a handsome individual, but not of Jesus. We don't read that about him. We read that he was despised and rejected of men. Right from the cradle to the grave, Jesus was despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected at, by Herod. At the time of his birth, he was despised by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all others uh, during his, his life. When it came to his death, he was despised by Herod. He was despised by the crowd. He was despised by the teachers of the law. But we read that on the cross, he was wounded for our transgressions, that his death was a substitutory atonement for the sins, not of himself, because he had no sin, but for others. At the time of his birth, you remember what the angel said, he will come and he will save his people from their sins. So he was wounded for our transgressions. But there's two other uh, things that Isaiah writes that I find fascinating associated with Easter. Remember, 700 years before the event, he will make his grave with the wicked. When Jesus Christ would die, that was the Hebrew way of talking about death, making your grave, when he would die, he would die with the wicked. Who was Jesus die? Who did he die with? He was died 
he died between two criminals. And with the rich in his death, he'd been a pauper all his life, but yet he was buried in the tomb of one of the richest people in the society of his day, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was an honorable, rich counselor, a good man who, like Nicodemus, for a period of time was a secret disciple, but ultimately at the time of the death of Jesus, he surfaced, as it were, as one who believed in Jesus, and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus so that he could bury it. So as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he realized that what he was doing was he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And no doubt in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was, to tempt, when he was tempted to deflect from the pathway of the cross, that that would have come into his mind as well, that he had a purpose to fulfill. He was fulfilling prophecy. But secondly, he was fulfilling the promise of salvation. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him as he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew that in Jerusalem he would have the Last Supper with his disciples. He knew that he would feel the weight of the opposition of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He knew about the traitor who would betray him the disciple who would deny him, the friends who would desert him, the crowd who would cry, crucify him, the judge who would sentence him, the thieves who he would be crucified with. And he also would have been aware that there would be friends who would not desert him, who would stand at the foot of the cross, and they would minister him in whatever way they could. An assortment of people with their own agendas, with different attitudes to Jesus Christ. But he also would have known that when he was hanging on the cross, there were certain things that he would have been saying. He would have been looking at those who crucified him and those who were responsible for his death on the cross, and he would be praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He would know that the thief that was going to be on the cross beside him would be penitent, and they would say, Today you will be with me in paradise. He would have said to his father, why have you forsaken me? He would have known that he was going to be forsaken and abandoned by his father. And he would have known also that at the end of life, he would be saying, it's finished. The work that I have come to do is now complete. And Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he was aware of all these things that were going to happen. But the question is, why was it necessary? Why was it necessary for Jesus to, to go to Jerusalem in the first place? Well, the story of the last week of the life of Jesus is a story of crucifixion that is stark and bold and messy and distasteful and unfair. And why did it happen? Well, it happened at the level of the human because of resentment and jealousy and politics. But at the heart of all that was happening, Jesus was fulfilling the desire of God. And the perspective of what was happening on the cross was a result of the fact that you and I are lawbreakers. In Jesus' teaching, he summed it up that all of us have sinned. And also in his teaching, he summed up that we were to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. 
but we haven't done that. We have failed to love God, and we have failed to love one another. We have put ourselves first rather than putting God first. Our lives are lived, as it were, a million miles away from what God wanted us to do. We're lawbreakers. Now, there are people today, and they would say, you know, it's not necessarily true that all of us are lawbreakers. You know, we're, we, we do our best and, and all the rest of it. But the Bible tells us that from our moment of birth, we break God's law. I have two boys that I grew up. But at no stage in the life of bringing up those two boys did I ever sit down and say, right guys, today we're going to have a lesson in doing wrong. Yeah, I sat them down at one stage and said, now, you need to learn how to use your knife and fork and not dig your fingers into your porridge. You have to use a spoon for that and you use a knife and fork for different things. Uh, and you've got to learn to tie your laces. And you've got to learn certain social skills that you don't have at the minute. Uh, and you can't uh, go about doing things that you're doing like, at the minute for the rest of your life. You've got to learn these things. And then they go to school. And in school they learn to add and subtract and to multiply and divide and do all the things that you learn in school. But at no stage did I ever sit down and say, right, today we're going to have a lesson on how to be bad-tempered. Or today we're going to have a lesson on how to be dishonest or how to be spiteful to your brother or how not to be obedient to your parents. We're going to have a lesson on all these things. Never did it. But yet they were spiteful. They were bad-tempered. They did all sorts of things that I didn't want them to do. Why was that? Because they were sinners from birth. They didn't need to be taught it. They just did it. It was part of their makeup. It was part of their nature. And all of us are the same. And as lawbreakers, the Bible tells us that we're condemned. That God is just and holy. And he tells us that there is life after death in heaven. But that unholiness cannot enter heaven. Romans 1 and 8. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. We are out of God's favor. And if heaven is a place where there can be nothing that is unrighteous or unholy, then we're banished. Unless God can take a step to reverse that situation. But we can do nothing about it. But God has taken a step. And in the fact, because of the fact we're lawbreakers, because of the fact that we're condemned... God in his love has provided the cross. And the cross was no accident. It happened within the plan of God. The cross was the reason why Jesus Christ came into the world. And through the crucifixion of his son, God has planned for the salvation of those who are going to respond to the gospel. The cross satisfied the justice of God that demanded that sin would be punished, and the cross also expressed the love of God that whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life. And so on the cross, when Jesus Christ died, 
God was temporarily turning his face from his son as darkness engulfed the world at an unprecedented time for three hours. And Jesus, who had no sin, the Bible tells us, became sin for us. And he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. And all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Jesus Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem, his reason was also not only to fulfill prophecy, but to fulfill the promise of salvation. But then thirdly, as Jesus Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem, he was doing something else. He was focusing on the establishment of the church. Now, this may come as somewhat as a surprise, but the primary purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world was not simply just to die on the cross. What did Jesus say? Jesus said that he had come in order that he would build his church. And the cross was the means to that end. That when we would respond to the gospel, then we would be part of this church that Jesus Christ was coming to build. And therefore, we were then to go out and we were to radiate the Christian gospel through what we had taken ourselves and we were to communicate that to others and others would become Christians. And that would be what the cross was all about. It was in order that the church would be built and the church is the custodian of the truth of the gospel. And one day, the Bible tells us that the church will be complete when the great multitude from every nation and tongue and tribe and language gather together at the foot of the Lamb. And when the last person for whom Jesus Christ died is saved, then the curtain of world history will fall, and that will be the end of the age as we know it, and the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, there are many people today, and they are very anxious about what is going on in our world. And I think it's true to say that there has never been weeks in our world like the past five or six weeks. The potential for disaster in our world has been far greater over the past five or six weeks than at any other time in the history of society. I say that because, yes, in the past there have been world wars, but there has never been the potential for such disaster as there is today because of the increased technology and nuclear capabilities that the world has at its disposal, more today than ever before in the history of mankind. And there's anxiety in Downing Street, in Brussels, with NATO, in the White House, and even with those who have a degree of understanding of what's going on, even in the Kremlin. And the curtain of world history will not come to an end because of what is happening at the moment, unless that has been determined by Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, the world will come to an end when all whom Jesus Christ have gathered into his church have been converted. That would be the de determining factor. 
There's a story told about a man called Lord Reich. Lord Reich was at the helm of the BBC in the days of its infancy, and he was a great Christian man, huge man in stature. And he had a number of young guys around him in the BBC who didn't share his very deep Christian principles. And one day in the boardroom, one of these young men was heard purposefully to say in his hearing that it was high time that the church gave itself a decent burial. Lord Reese said nothing for a moment and then stood to the full stature of his height. And looking at the boy who had spoken, he said, young man, he said, let me pronounce to you today that the church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. It will stand at the grave of every other organization and institution known to man because it's within the church of Jesus Christ that God's purposes for the world will be fulfilled. And that's something that should be a great encouragement to all of us, that we're not involved in some hole-in-the-hedge organization that has no influence upon our world, but we are involved in that which is at the very center of God's purposes for the world when we have responded to the gospel and when we're part of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem. Yes, to fulfill prophecy, yes, to die on the cross, but also to establish the church. And therefore, the question we need to be asking ourselves this morning is a very simple question. And the question is this, am I a member of the church? I'm not asking you, are you a member of Union Road Presbyterian or, or any other church? But I'm simply asking you, are you a member of the true church of Jesus Christ, of the universal church? Have you become a beneficiary of what Jesus Christ did on the cross so long ago? I conclude by quoting a a verse of a hymn. It's a hymn that used to be in, in some of our older hymn books. It must, I must confess, not a hymn that I sung or heard sung very often. But the hymn was entitled, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It had eight lines in a verse, and this was the last verse. My name on the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Is your name on the palm of his hands? Then it goes on to say this. Yes, I to the end will endure so long as the earnest is given. And then the last two lines are probably two lines of words that have been put together that mean more in the English language than most other words. And this is what the two lines say. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. In other words, those who have died and have gone to heaven are more happy than those of us who remain on earth. Of that there is no doubt. But the hymn is putting it like this. They're not any more secure in heaven than those of us in earth who have responded to the gospel and who will endure to the end. 
Let me say that again. Those who are in heaven are more happy than we are on earth. But they're not any more secure of the fact that they'll be in heaven, because they are there, than those of us who are on earth and who have responded to the gospel and will endure to the end. We have that great assurance. So it doesn't matter what happens in our world. It doesn't matter if somebody does pull a switch by accident and that the world comes to an end. Because we, as Christians having been part of the church of Jesus Christ for which he died, and of that assurance that we'll go to be with those who have gone before. Are you a member of the church? Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. He accomplished salvation for you. He established his church. Are you part of it? Let us pray. Thank you.